Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show, where we save you time by providing you the too-long-didn't-read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube through video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR Show. This is your cybersecurity news recap for May 2022, uh, May 22, 2022, and May through May 20, uh, May 28th, 2022. Ah, welcome, welcome, welcome. If this is the first time that you're joining us, what we do here is we basically go through the news recaps and just take a look at what's happened in the last week of cybersecurity news. If you're joining us on YouTube, make sure that you like and like the video and comment, subscribe, do all the standard YouTube stuff. If you're joining us on the podcasting platforms, make sure that you leave us a review and subscribe to the. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the articles here. And if you're joining us on YouTube, I'm actually going to start sharing some of these on the screen here so that you can see them. So go ahead and bring this first one up. A little bit bigger so you can see it if you're joining us on YouTube. All right, so the first video or the first article that we have is YouTube removes more than 9,000 channels relating to the Ukraine war. So YouTube has taken down more than 70,000 videos and 9,000 channels related to the uh, the war in Ukraine for violating content guidelines, including removal of videos that referred to the invasion as a liberation mission. So the, the reason why that I've brought up this article is really to just emphasize you know, the social media platforms, they are beginning to be under more and more scrutiny all the time or you know, kind of censoring or uh, removing misinformation uh, videos and articles and just information in general that is considered misinformation. And I really wanted to emphasize the magnitude of what can happen here. And this can be related to companies that you work in, right? If you work in a social media company, uh, that's definitely something that you have to be concerned about. But YouTube... 9,000 channels. Think about that. Just how many channels probably exist on YouTube? They were able to capture, you know, 9,000 that they could deactivate and 70,000 videos. Now, video is a little bit different challenge than text-based things, right? And I'm sure they're using some kind of back-end artificial intelligence or something like that, right? Maybe they transcribe it first and then they go through the transcriptions and they look for things that they're trying to flag. But that's just amazing. And we've seen a lot of new regulations and things like that trying to pop up in other parts of the world where they are trying to force social media or big tech companies to regulate on a lot of this stuff. And it just was kind of an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting article, an interesting find. See, let's bring up the next one here. All right, so Microsoft is censoring searches in the U.S. for politically sensitive Chinese names, researchers say. Bing's autofill system 
which offers guesses on what users are searching for after a few keystrokes, often fell silent in connection to name, uh, names the Chinese government deems sensitive. Last year, Microsoft suspended the autofill feature in China to comply with Chinese laws. The new report provides evidence that censorship in China could influence search results for users in the U.S. and Canada. So if you're censoring in one country, and again, this is related to the YouTube and all these social media platforms and big tech companies, if you're censoring in one country, how do you make sure that other countries aren't affected by that? And, you know, if you've heard me say in other videos that I do uh, on my other channel or anywhere else, or even on here, you know, with cybersecurity, you have to abide by those laws in the countries that you are operating in, right? And this is kind of that case because Microsoft's operating in China. They have to comply with Chinese law. Well, typically you'll put in some kind of control and then how do you vet that so that it doesn't spill over into other areas, right? And other countries or other customers. And so that they're getting the experience that they expect and then you are abide, abiding by the laws in these other countries. So again, just a really interesting thing. And I don't think the, the big tech companies or social media platforms, you know, they're not out, of, uh, out in the clear. They are going to face more and more scrutiny over the years as things kind of evolve and develop. And especially as regulators start to get more of a control on and understanding of you know what is going on in the cyber world so keep that in mind just if you work at one of these companies or if you are planning on starting a company like this and really just in general because it, it's not you know, it's not just these kind of country uh, companies that are subject to these other laws so keep that in mind bigger here on the screen. And this is certainly one annoying thing that you see on a lot of these articles, advertisements. I hate when, when websites do that. But ransomware attack exposes data of 500,000 Chicago students. So the Chicago Public Schools has suffered a massive data breach that exposed the data of almost 500,000 students and 60,000 employees after their vendor, Atelier for Kids, suffered a ransomware attack in December. Ohio-based Atelier, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's how we're going to do it, uh, for kids, is not a not-for-profit educational organization that analyzes student data shared by public school systems to design instructional models and evaluate teacher performance. The company says they work with 267 school systems and its programs have reached over 2.8 million students. So if data is taken on students or kids, right, these younger kids, that is data that could end up, you know, down the road uh, causing impact for a while, right? Because think of this. So in the United States, everybody, you know, that's born here and basically everybody that is, you know, able to be here, uh, they, they have this social security number. It's basically an identification number. So this is just one example. But let's say that 
you know, that information is taken. Well, as, you know, as a kid, you're probably not going to qualify in the systems for like credit and things like that. But let's say that an attacker gets that information and they wait like 15 years, right? It's never just discovered that that information is out there. So you just keep going on and using your social security number to get uh, loans and build up your credit. Well, then that attacker decides to use that number. Well, okay, now they have access to this and they kind of lay dormant for a while. And again, that's just one example, but you know, with kids especially, you have to be very sensitive about that data that you're aggregating, right? Because there's much more long-term effects that you're probably not gonna see for a little bit, regardless of what the data is. And you know, one issue with school systems in general and nonprofit organizations is they typically don't have a lot of security resources. And that's another issue because they don't have these large teams to provide security. They probably aren't doing enough security in most cases. So it's a real issue. And, you know, that's no surprise. Any kind of small business, right? There's a lot of issues, but especially when it's a nonprofit organization. And so one thing that I really want to get out there and kind of emphasize, if you're thinking about ideas and places where you can know really help that's a great place a nonprofit kind of spin to it so if you can create a product that can help these and it's not just the nonprofits right it's small businesses too so you can have a widespread reach but something that can help where security resources are constrained so any kind of automation or you know anything that makes that process better and more secure and more efficient with low resources, that will always be a great place to develop products and develop ways that you can really help. So even if you don't develop some full-fledged product, right, you just create some maybe automation script or something like that. Either way, that's gonna be very helpful for these kind of organizations because they just don't have the budget. Um, And we're seeing more schools, school systems being attacked too. We had that article a few weeks ago where the university actually had to close down because we had all the pandemic and then they had some ransomware attacks and things like that and they just could not recover. So it's it's a serious issue for sure. This next article up here. And ads, 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 ah. Meta will share political ad targeting data with researchers, finally. So Meta will give researchers access to targeting data for political ads, information that that academics have been clamoring for and using legally risky workarounds to collect, collect on their own for years. The companies argued that in the past, sharing targeting information would risk violating user privacy. Last year, it went so far as to permanently shut down a widely used ad transparency project ran out of New York University after serving researchers there with a cease and desist. In a blog posted on Monday, Meta said that it would share targeting data on individual ads with pre-vetted researchers who are part of the Facebook Open Research and Transparency Project. So 
this will be interesting. You know what some of this data that they're going to actually share contains. I imagine that it's going to be pretty watered down because you know, uh, it doesn't seem like companies like this are pretty forthright with kind of the information that they're possibly gathering or that they you know get are gathering in full. But um, you know I think transparency in general is pretty good. Um, it's a good idea around political ads targeting data. I think once you start getting into like the elections and stuff like that, you know, I think there's going to have to start being some more scrutiny around what they're collecting because we'll have to see obviously what they provide. And then you know, people are going to make inferences about inferences about what, you know, what the data fully looks like behind the scenes, not just what they're providing. But, um, you know, as a user of a service like this, whenever your data gets shared, it's always concerning. And from a cybersecurity standpoint, you know, what kind of data are we collecting? Uh, how is that data protected? All these things matter. Who, who are we sharing it with? And so that's one thing that uh, European Union, the EU, they, they are very strict with how data is collected, how it's used, how it's shared, all this stuff. And other parts of the world really aren't as, you know, they're not as strict with how that stuff is handled. And I think that's probably, oh, definitely linked to why there are some more issues with data being exposed in other countries and other parts of the world. Because especially as we're starting to transition more and more to the web and, you know, connected systems, more and more data is being collected especially you know social media that's something that everybody is pretty much on they're sharing a lot of information and so there's a lot of aggregation of all this data and it's just you know it it's concerning the more data that you process and store it's not as much necessarily about the processing because if you take in data and then you basically get rid of it after you're done with it so you send it through your system do whatever you have to do, like credit card transactions, right? And then you just, you get rid of it. You don't need it anymore. Well, obviously, once you start retaining that information, that kind of opens the doors with what you can do internally, but then also what happens when you get compromised or somebody abuses the system that's in place and they can you know, start uh, inferring or accessing other data and that that was a real issue with with this a couple of years ago, where uh, Facebook specifically would basically trust like an application, and then that trust would then give uh, with a third party, and then that trust would give access to a I guess a fourth party, somebody outside of that relationship, or. Uh, or rather, sorry, you would give access to that third party. That third party would then be able to access your friends, so that fourth party, and they would be able to see information about them too. So that was a huge, huge issue. And Facebook, you know, they had a lot of controversy and scrutiny that was put on them because of that. They had to go testify, which they seem to always be testifying uh, at Congress and stuff like that, and nothing really seems to ever come out of that, which is also concerning. But um, you know, it seems like it's more of a more of a show because you know 
I don't know. There's not a ton that comes out of that. They're like, we're going to, we're going to crack down on you more maybe. And then well, nothing happens. So <laughs> see here. All right, here's the next article. And of course, more ads. Let's close that so you can see that. And Clearview AI ordered to delete all data on UK residents. So Clearview has been ordered to stop collecting additional information about UK residents and will pay a fine of roughly $9.4 million for violating the country's data protection laws. This is the fourth time that this company has been ordered to wipe data of a country's entire country's residents following orders from Australia, France, and Italy in recent months. The investigation found the company failed to use data it collected in a fair and transparent way, collected it without a lawful reason, and didn't meet the data protection standards required for biometric data. So it's obviously around biometric data, but this is just an example of collecting a lot of information and not you know, really putting in good standards as far as how you're going to protect and use that data and even apparently how you collect it too. But, you know, again, the UK, European Union, they are just much more strict with how uh, the end user's data is, you know, collected and used. And I think it's a good thing. And I think that, you know, in countries like the US, you know, there's certain types of data that are protected, like healthcare data and things like that. But I think it's, you know, been very, very, very laxed on other kinds of data, you know, like social media, like Facebook. Like, it's been very, very laxed as far as what they collect, how they deal with it and all this stuff, regardless of, you know, them testifying Congress. It's just like uh, nothing seems to change while these other uh, countries are releasing regulations that are being very, very strict and have been for a while. So just interesting. I think that we're going to see, you know, a lot more regarding this over time. And I think eventually, you know, eventually it's something's going to have to change, right? Like there's going to have to be, um, it's just, it's going to have to change. Um, All right. Nation-state malware could become a commodity on the dark web soon, Interpol warns. Interpol Secretary General Jurgen Stock declared that nation-state malware will become available on the dark net in a couple of years. Threat actors could perform reverse engineering of military-made malicious code and use their own versions and attacks in the wild. Uh, This scenario also opens the door to false flag operations. Nation-state actors could have access to cyber weapons used in the conflict and use them in attacks in the wild making the attribution impossible. There's a major concern in the physical world, weapons that are used on the battlefield, and tomorrow will be used by organized crime groups, said Jurgenstock, Interpol Security General. So this is something that we've started to see a little bit more, right? That, um, that a lot of this malware and you know, bad stuff is being commercialized and put out there to be more available started seeing things like on GitHub where it was available on there and, you know, just, just um, low cost malware. So it's more available, more reachable, attainable by, you know, attackers that don't have a huge budget. But 
you know, as we start seeing this nation state malware getting out there and becoming lower cost and easily, uh, more easily accessible, obviously that's more of a concern because this stuff is created basically by kind of uh, corporations, if you will, right? People that have a lot of resources behind them, a lot of staffing to really create some good stuff as far as, you know, uh, well-written stuff that just works and does what it's supposed to do, right? Uh, ignoring the end consequence, but it, do, it does what it's supposed to do, what it was created to. And so if these weapons and things like that start getting out there, you know, that starts to create more of a nightmare for all companies, right? Because it depends on who gets it, right? If it's just a regular attack or something like that, but they can use it on whatever com uh, company that they're going after, hacktivists or you know, they're just you know, they don't agree with a company's stance and they can start using some of these sophisticated things and the bar to entry on attacking some of this stuff goes way down because you know even now there's script kiddies who can utilize things that are already out there but you know you start getting some of this really heavy duty stuff and it's just easy to launch it and not have to think about it. Uh, anytime that, that bar, that barrier to entry for attackers gets lower, it becomes more of a concern because it's just, it's more of an issue, right? Let's see here. Let's pull this one up. All right. Hijacker says hijacking libraries, stealing AWS keys was ethical research. So in this article, a security researcher, and I'm doing quotes here, if you can put in the camera quotes, uh, security researcher was able to modify Python PHP libraries, CTX and PHPass, capture AWS credentials and developer environmental variables. He says, I sent a report to HackerOne to show maximum impact. Not familiar with what HackerOne is. HackerOne is a bug bounty program platform. So they host uh, programs for all kinds of companies. All this research does not contain any malicious activity. I want to show how the simple attack affects 10 million users and companies. All the data that I received is deleted and not used. So this brings up an ethical dilemma here because you know, there are a lot of people out there that uh, that are kind of security researchers. They maybe not formally in their job, but uh, or even I guess they could be, but typically it's people that are not formally in these kind of roles and they like to, you know, experiment and research and try to find issues. And, you know, a lot of times they do like to report them and, um, you know, kind it's kind of ethical because it's like, hey, like, I was curious and I found this and I wanted to let you know, I don't want this to be an issue, right? You know, one of the first rules in cybersecurity and being ethical with this stuff is that you have permission. A lot of times stuff like this, you know, there isn't permission. It's kind of a curiosity thing and it's like, but I'm, you know, I'm a good person. So I'm going to report this. I'm, I'm going to disclose it to the company. I'm not going to release it. With this one specifically, you know, this, uh, 
this got AWS keys, right? And for, for companies and things like that, like it is more of a serious issue. And I think that, you know, especially as somebody who, um, you know, who would be on the ethical side, typically what happens is if you find something really severe, right? Like you're going to have access to a lot of critical stuff or sensitive stuff, typically, right? And what you should do is you should stop, stop and contact the company or, you know, whoever is in charge, right? And say, I found this, right? You know, what is the, the um, what is the plan forward? Like, do you want me to keep digging? Like, where, where do we go from here? You don't just keep going. Because once you keep going, frankly, you're kind of crossing the line as far as the ethical, um, the ethical line here. You know, it's not that companies don't want to know all the time how much further you can go because, you know, sometimes that can be good uh, because then you really know the extent of what the issue is. But once you go further and then you start getting customer data and you start getting into sensitive information, you're crossing the legal threshold as far as, you know, what that can be considered, right? If you all of a sudden access all this healthcare data that you're not contract to do, you're not under NDA, you know, all this stuff is not in place. You have definitely crossed the legal threshold as far as what, you know, would even be allowed in a lot of these programs. Um, I, I don't know the specifics of that, the program or, you know, what, what was going on here in this, because a lot of times these programs are very detailed as far as what you can access, where you can go, what you can do, like all this stuff. And I, I highly recommend that you check out some of these programs and just read through the the, disclo- the requirements of the program because, it, you know, it'll tell you URLs and all this stuff. But, you know, just knowing what I've seen in the article, that is, yeah, that that was not handled correctly. And I'd be interested to know maybe a little bit more about this person that did it, this, uh, you know, security researcher. Um, because it just doesn't seem like it seems like somebody who's very technical, probably as far as their capabilities and skills, but as far as their professional acumen and how these things are handled, that seems, you know, questionable because like I said, I mean, the standard protocol, if you're going to find some sensitive information or, potentially there's a really serious issue that you're starting to stumble starting to stumble upon you report it and you talk to the company and you you know you try to figure out the best path forward because it's their data it's their networks oh so that is the ethical thing to do so I, I question this for sure um, especially with like breach notifications because a lot of times if there's sensitive data and things like that, or so many customers involved, and you know, it depends on the country and all this stuff. Uh, there are breach notification laws or requirements you have to fulfill, right? And if it is not a contracted event uh, engagement, and it's not included in the bug bounty programs, you might find yourself 
having to send out a breach notification because of this. That's a whole nother bunch of issues uh, that would involve this person, right? And so, yeah, it, I'm very interested to see kind of what happens and what comes out of this. All right, so this next article is pretty interesting and I definitely recommend that you check this one out. So Lumos Systems can find hidden cameras and IoT devices in your Airbnb or hotel room. A group of academics has devised a system that can be used on a phone, laptop to or laptop to identify and locate Wi-Fi connected devices uh, hidden IoT devices in, in familiar, unfamiliar physical spaces. The system dubbed uh, Lumos is designed with this intent in mind and to visualize the presence using augmented reality interfaces. So basically what happens is, uh, and again, check out the article because they have a video of somebody actually going through a room and doing this, but it connects to uh, the Wi-Fi network and it collects some packets and basically starts analyzing the area. And then you go through with your camera and it will actually visually show you kind of like Pokemon Go if you've ever played Pokemon Go or something like that where it uses your camera and you're kind of walking through the real world. But, um, and it visually shows you where like cameras are or uh, another thing that was in there was like a speaker and very, very cool. Um, and especially, you know, if you're going to like Airbnbs and things like that and you're trying to find some creepers, Know, that are that are putting up cameras and that are just doing suspicious things. Uh, this is a really interesting and cool idea. So catch all those you know, creeper cameras that are out there. Crazy. All right. Let's see here. It's definitely one that I want to cover here. All right, so PDF smuggles Word, uh, Microsoft Word doc to drop snake keylogger malware. But analysts discovered a recent malware distribution campaign using PDFs to smuggle or embed malicious Word documents that infect users with malware. Uh, PDF is pretty unusual because usually attackers are using DocX or XLS, which is Word or uh, Excel documents, and they they basically put macros, uh, macro code embedded inside of that. So enable macros, it will run the macro and it will do something. But uh, however, as people become more educated about opening malicious Microsoft Office document, uh, attachments, threat actors switch to other methods to deploy malicious macros and evade detection. So again, just trying to evade detection. Now, there is another article that's related to that up here. So in 2022, there's still malware-laden PDFs and emails exploiting bugs from 2017. HP cybersecurity folks have uncovered an email campaign that uh, ticks all the boxes, messaged with a PDF attached that embeds a Word document that on opening infects the victim's Windows PC with malware by exploiting a four-year-old execution vulnerability in Microsoft Office. Ruby trapping a PDF with a malicious Word document goes against the norm. Again, we're used to seeing Word and Excel files. 
Reasons are clear. Users are familiar with these file types. The applications used to open them are ubiquitous and they are suited to social engineering lures. Basically, you know, your users are used to receiving Word docs and Excel documents, even PDFs, right? Um, I think PDFs, you know, people seem to be a little bit more skeptical of them sometimes, but apparently it's working. And, um, you know, for users, especially users that are not extremely trained on cybersecurity and just keeping the network secure, they are, you know, much more likely to click on something or do something if it's believable. So if you make it, you know, look legitimate, a lot of these users are probably going to fall for it. It's just how it is. You know, it, that's why user education is so important because if you're not educating your users, you know, you're, you're definitely going to uh, have a lot of issues as far as, you know, as far as getting compromised, really. So I highly, highly recommend that, um, you know, that you train your users, you train them well, you take metrics on how you're training them and just make sure that you're improving their response to things like that. Fish them with these campaigns. And, you know, again, it's kind of that thing where we're like, oh, well, users are the biggest weakness in our environment. I mean, it's kind of, you know, uh, it's kind of offensive to tell an, a user that. But, you know, really, you have to train your users. You know, they are going to get emails. Attackers are going to go after them. They're going to try to lure them and try to social engineer them. And it's just because, you know, technology, a lot of times if you configure it right, a lot of times there's not a lot of weaknesses that are there. There can be and new vulnerabilities and things like that. But users, you know, if you're not updating them, right, again in quotes, you're not patching them, you're not training them, then they're going to continue to be a weakness in your organization where attackers can get into. So I would definitely spend a lot of time trying to educate your users and just make sure they know how to handle this stuff. Uh, and then the last article, Google shut down uh, caching servers at two Russian ISPs. So if you don't know what an ISP is, an ISP, uh, or sorry, not an ISP, a caching server, basically a caching server the idea is that you're trying to speed up the access to that data. So just like you do with your ISP, your internet service provider, or like Google, they basically try to cache a lot of information so it's very close to the user. And that way, you know, if it hasn't changed, then that full request doesn't have to keep being made out to the end server all the time. Just keep that cached information and it's a lot faster. So uh, with this, uh, a lot of the Russian attacks and you know, a lot of stuff like that is cached, right? Like it's a good feature that can be used obviously poorly uh, or maliciously. And, you know, if you can slow down access to information, you can you know, delay responses, you can cause a lot of disruptions, right? If somebody has a lot harder time accessing data, then just have more control. So especially if it's something malicious, 
and you're you're shutting this down so they can't cache this information, it just slows down the whole operation and hopefully you can catch it a lot faster. So that is all the articles for this week. Again, this was for May 2022 or May 22, 22nd to 2022 uh, through May 20, 28th, 2022. And this is the Cybersecurity TLDR show. If uh, you enjoyed this and you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and leave it a like and subscribe to the channel as well. Keep coming back. If you're watching on, uh, listening on the podcast, I appreciate you. And make sure that you subscribe and keep checking in with the new episodes and leave us a review as well. But with that, that is going to go ahead and wrap it up for this week. And I will see you next time.